This story comes from an American businessman. On a trip to Belgium, he just might have seen eye to eye with the supernatural. Well, it was my first time visiting anywhere in Europe. Uh, it was a conference in Antwerp, Belgium. I think a lot of us Americans do find some of the buildings uh, spooky, you know, simply because many of the European buildings are very old. We maybe associate that with ghosts and hauntings. But that said, I fell in love with the place. The old architecture, the antiques, the whole history of it all. I mean, the hotel I stayed at was a great example. It was a 300-year-old building, all that great woodwork and classic styles. But uh, like a lot of Europe, it was fitted with all the modern conveniences. My suite on the first floor was surprisingly quiet and cozy. It was overlooking some historical section of the town. You know, with the cobblestone streets and old buildings. You know, the only problem I came across in Belgium was that uh, all too common problem of jet lag. By the end of the first night, I was very exhausted. We had a very long flight, the hustle and bustle of travel, all of the walking up and down the streets, all the excitement. But yet, as midnight rolled around, I found myself far too alert. I guess my body clock figured it was lunchtime and not sleep time. Well, by 2 a.m. in Belgian time, I was still awake and I thought I'd try a hot shower, maybe see if that would uh, click the old sleep switch off. And I was just drying off when I could hear the sound of a dog trotting up and down the hallway. Now, the door had one of those peepholes, and so I sort of sidled up and pressed my eye against it to see if I could spot the dog. But instead of seeing anything at all, I just got blasted with a red light. It seems at night the hotel had some kind of red light that must have been aimed directly into my door. Oh well. At that point, I did feel quite sleepy. I turned out the lights and finally went to bed. The next day was a big day. Between meetings and scheduled events, some of us crammed in Belgian waffle, did souvenir shopping sprees, and all the tours we could find. I did the whole day with just a few hours sleep and was again physically exhausted. But here again, that jet lag had caught up with me. I looked in that mirror and saw my haggard face and bloodshot eyes and all the signs of needing sleep desperately, but my internal body clock kept insisting it must have been daytime, not nighttime. Well past midnight, I was mentally delirious with lack of sleep. And once again, I pittered around. I read some pamphlets. thought I would try that hot shower again. And just as I was drying off, there it was again. That dog was running up and down the hallway. But this time, I heard it growling at something outside my door. Now, I didn't think it was too unusual. I mean, I'd seen service dogs in hotels before, but this seemed a little strange. So I tried to peek out the peephole again and quickly was reminded that there is a bright red light blasting away into that peephole. Oh, right, there's a bright red light. I'm not gonna be able to see out in the hallway. 
You know, it's almost like a camera flash. I think I was blinded in one eye. Anyway, I cracked the door open to see if I could spot the dog. I saw the rear end of a black dog turning the corner and down the stairwell. Well, the next morning, I was checking out. You know, there was an older couple manning the front desk. And when I handed in my card, we made small talk. Now, you mentioned how much I loved the old style. Everything was so old, but so interesting. Oh, I did mention to them, hey, I don't know if you folks know this, but there's a dog or dogs running around the hallway at night? I guess it's possible, but we don't allow dogs in this hotel, sir. Are you sure? About what time was this? I told him it was very late at night, and that's why it was a little unusual. Oh, that reminds me, and I'm not complaining, but I think you guys have a security light out in that hallway set to nuclear power levels. That red light is so bright that even as I went to bed, I could see it beaming through the peephole. I'm just letting you know. And now the old man starts talking to the old lady, his wife, I assume, and she's becoming a little agitated, a little alarmed. Now, I don't know what they're saying because they're speaking Belgian, but something like, uh, old road, ogen, old, I didn't know what she was saying. He said, as if in a hushed way, to make sure nobody was listening to us. She says, it's the necker. The necker? Old red eyes. I wasn't sure what he was talking about. Was he talking about my bloodshot red eyes? I don't know if the name of the dog was Old Red Eyes. The couple looked very upset. I didn't want to push them any further with this. I felt it was best to let myself get going. I had a plane to catch after all. And so I bid goodbye to Belgium and boarded my plane. It was a few hours later on the airplane crossing the Atlantic Ocean. I had purchased a book about Belgium's history at the airport, and I came across a section about old myths and legends about four hours into my flight. The Necker, Nicker, Old Red Eyes, a demon, a ghost who was said to come from the marshes late at night. It seems the Necker is a kind of ghostly peeping Tom, who would peer into the homes at night, looking for any children who were up too late. It was said if he found them, he would abduct them and take them with him back to the marshes to eat them. Said he could change shape from a human-like figure into that of a black dog if he needed to escape a scene. He was said to be black, jet black from head to toe, his entire body, except for one thing, his eyes were a burning bright red. That's when I realized there was no bright red lights in that hallway when I had pressed my own eyes against that peephole in the door. Well, this story took place decades ago. At that time, my wife and I, they called us yuppies, young urban professionals. It was back in the 80s, and we both worked in business jobs. 
We worked downtown. It was noisy. It was busy. The cities were polluted. And there was traffic everywhere. Every day was people, people, people. And it was taking a toll on us. It was actually starting to hurt our romantic life as well. We thought we'd get away from it all. We would rent a cabin in the woods, a secluded cabin, away from people, away from traffic, away from everything. Keep in mind, this is back in the 80s, so the internet and mobile phones were not nearly as common as today, if anyone had them at all. But I think even today, you would not be getting any bars that far out into the wilderness. Yes, indeed, the cabin was more secluded than we expected. Actually, we had to take a quite a long drive outside city limits, then on to some logging roads. Finally, we were on dirt roads, and a few hours later, on a beautiful Saturday morning in the summer, we found our cabin. Now, being city people, we were not familiar with the rural life. But the cabin was actually much better than we expected. It was a solid two-story cabin. It was made with those massive logs. It had a big brick chimney. You know, even as we entered, we fell in love with this big solid oak door. You know, it made that satisfying creaking sound and thunk as he closed it behind you. Yeah, the interior of the cabin was great too. So cozy. It had a real bearskin rug in front of a rustic fireplace, a quaint kitchen, and a little spiral of wooden stairs led to an upstairs bedroom. So this was the private weekend getaway we'd dreamed of. We had beautiful summer weather, and we had the rest of the Saturday afternoon to go explore the area outside, to commune with nature. Actually, the whole area was surrounded by the biggest trees I'd ever seen. The forest around it was so thick you couldn't even see through them. Chirping birds and squirrels and warm breezes. We found a beautiful creek to walk along. Fields. Oh, we could feel all that city living stress starting to melt away. A few hours into our nature exploration, my wife says, Do you know what feels strange? Well, I mean it sounds strange. At first I tried listening to what she was referring to. She said, no, 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 I mean, listen, there's no human noises out here. Not an airplane sound, not the sound of a truck driving by. It's nothing but nature. And I remember I added, yeah, you're right about that, because we'd hiked around for hours now, and I don't think I'd seen anything that was even man-made at all. Like no other cabins, no other hikers, no other roads. I didn't even see human litter anywhere. We really started to feel like we were the only two people on Earth, and we loved that feeling. So we headed back to the cabin to nestle in for an even more relaxing evening. We had a nice dinner, we started a warm fire, and we're just settling in for a quiet night when... Uh, What the hell? We could hear a sound knocking on that big wooden door. Now, at first, we thought it had to be a raccoon, but maybe it was a person? It was so faint, but a knocking sound. 
Now, there was a small window near the front door, and I tried to see who or what was out there, uh, but I couldn't see anyone or anything. I kind of turned to the wife who was sitting on the sofa. I don't know. Maybe it's a woodpecker. Oh, yes. As I turned to say that to my wife, I see in the window right behind her a head. I mean a boy's head. A boy. Uh, just ahead of him, as if he was on his tippy toes, trying to peek up into the window. Maybe he was trying to see who was inside. But it startled me a little bit. But it was just a kid. I don't know, maybe we thought from a nearby cabin? Not that we knew of any that were nearby. I pull open that big old door. Hey-oh! But the kid doesn't appear. Hey, kid. Then he shuffles out from the side of the house into my view. Thing is, he looks guilty of something. Apprehensive. And if I had to guess, I mean, I would say he's a local kid. He was kind of rough and dirty and had ill-fitting clothes, muddy shoes. Hey, it's okay, buddy. Uh, what do you want? And with that, he bolts. He runs like a scared deer down the path, through the forest, and disappears around the corner. Now my wife's already at the door. Oh, why did he run? I don't know. Well, I guess he's not coming in. I pulled that big old oak door closed and thunk. I guess he might just be a curious local kid, but that was weird. We settled back into our planned evening of peace and quiet, but my wife was still a little bothered by the kid. I mean, what if he actually was lost or in trouble? Well, if he does need help, hopefully he comes back before dark, so we can... Wait, hang on, kid, I say loudly, but as friendly as I can. My wife looks out the window where he'd popped up before. I creaked open the door, hurrying a little, but not too fast to scare him either. Now, he's not standing in front of the door, but instead he's down at the steps that lead up to the porch, a few feet back. He's got one leg on one step. It's like he's getting ready to run again. Hey, buddy. My wife and I say in unison, both of us putting on the most non-threatening body language. Hi, what's your name? Now the sun is setting, but we can kind of make out his dirty face, and he still looks really tense. You know, it's like he's a rabbit and we're cougars about to pounce. I slowly reach over and flick on the porch light. Hopefully he can see we're happy, nice city people. And boom! He bolts again. He turned and ran right down that darkening trail again. I holler, but he's fast, and he's already long gone. Well, we wait at the door for at least a few minutes, listening to, I don't know, can we hear something? Maybe a sound of a car, or some other kids, but he simply vanished. Not a sign or sound of him. Well, again, we hauled that big old door closed with a thunk and set back to our evening. But needless to say, our night of blissful peace and quiet never felt relaxed after that. In fact, I'd already switched from my slippers back to my runners and had a flashlight in my pocket just in case he showed up again. Hours passed. Eventually, it was pitch black outside and nearing midnight. 
We agreed though, if he does this again, and at this time of night, I was going to chase him down and physically catch him, because surely no parents are around to let a kid out at that time of night. And if it's necessary, I'll grab him and we'll find out what's wrong and drive him to the nearest town. My wife calmed down a bit. She got in her pajamas and decided to go upstairs and read in bed. The generator was getting low on fuel, so I powered off all the lights except for that vintage lamp upstairs in the bedroom beside her bed. I was just having a mid-stretch and yawn before joining her when... Damn it! That kid is back! I didn't yell that. I thought that. With all the lights downstairs being off, the bedroom light illuminated the front of the cabin just enough so that I could spot him coming out of the trees, coming out of the darkness, and hovering around in front of the cabin. It seems he was more nervous than before. He was sort of apprehensively halting and moving like he wasn't sure if he should come up to the door and knock again, or he was glancing around like he needed to know who was watching him. I ever so quietly got to the door and decided there was no way to slowly open this door without him hearing me and running off again. This time, I unlatched and burst out as fast as I could. I leapt straight over the porch and stairs, but by the time I landed on my feet, that kid was already turning and racing down the trail. I hurled after him. The chase was on. It was quickly obvious he knew the dark trail better than I did. I got my flashlight out, and with that, I could spot the back of him running down that trail. It was about a 200-meter dash, and I got him. Now, he'd pretty much just slowed up when I got on top of him anyway, but I grabbed him and took a hold of his arm. <sighs> Kid! <sighs> hey, 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 hey! I I'm not going to hurt you, okay? J I want to help you, okay? I try to tell the kid, See, back there, my wife, she's in the window. She says it's okay. Don't run away. We can help you if you're scared, okay? Now, I waved my flashlight around, hoping my wife could spot it from way back in the top floor of her room. And the wife's silhouetted arms waved back at it, so I knew she was acknowledging us. The kid spoke for the first time. I'm not scared of you or your wife. Well, then why the hell do you keep running away? I let go of his arm. The boy paused for just a few seconds. Then he, oddly enough, looked past me towards the cabin. Because my uncles told me to. Wait, what? Your uncles told you to... I turned my head towards the cabin to see what he was looking at. Your uncles told you... You ran off in the darkness twice as fast as before. Quite far from the cabin this point. I'm looking towards the cabin. That's when I hear the unmistakable creaking and clunk sound of the front door of the cabin slamming shut. I frantically waved my flashlight at the second floor window, but all I could make out was the silhouette of my wife, her body turning around as if to face whoever was coming up the stairs.
This story comes to us from the Bahamas, where some sports fishermen become the sport. Bob and Doug loved nothing more than deep sea sports fishing. They had a gorgeous top of the line boat, the best fishing gear, and walls of trophies. From marlins to tuna, they'd caught them all. But on this day, the two ventured off by themselves to a remote area of the Bahamas. See, this area was off limits to fishermen, but if anything, that only made the area more intriguing to them. A few hours into the day, they were very disappointed. Uh, not a single bite, not a thing. It was as if all the fish in the sea were somewhere else but there. Now, dark clouds and heavier winds started rolling in, and having had no luck, the two just started turning back their boat when it collided with something. There was no time to speculate about what had happened. The hole had been torn open, and they were sinking fast. Bob barely had time to hurl himself off a rapidly sinking boat, and there was no sign of Doug anywhere. Thankfully, Bob had been wearing his life vest, so he knew he was able to stay afloat. But with no sign of Doug, he knew he had to focus on his only remaining hope, a small island. He started the swim. Now, it was a long way to that beach, but he knew he could do it. Then Bob saw it. Something broke the water, not far to the right of him. A whale? A shark? No. Actually, with all his experience at sea, Bob couldn't figure it out, but it seemed to be moving towards him before splooshing under again. Bob paddled a little slowly. He could get to the island, but he wanted to steer away from, well, whatever that blackish-green thing was. And there, another one, behind him. A shiny roll of flesh spooled up and then went under and then appeared again even closer to him. Whatever these sea creatures were, he could only believe that they had spotted him and they were surrounding him. He'd just have to swim for that shore as fast and furiously as he could, just hope to outrun them. Swimming for his life, but trying to keep an eye on the creatures. He could only think about sharks encircling their victims before going in for the kill. And the shore was getting closer now. He thought he could make it. But then, between him and the shore, another appears. It made a splash as it broke the surface, and a winding coil of flesh rolled and rolled, and raised like a blockade before the sandy goal line he was aiming for. Bob stopped dead in the water. He began turning himself. His life vest was keeping him buoyant. He kept his legs still turning himself around. One, two of them, three. All of them were now coming to the surface, and he realized there weren't eight creatures. There were merely eight different tentacles of what would be just one mighty sea monster, the mother of all octopus. And then he stared in fearful, silent awe as the monster's head rose above the water. And just then, with stunning power, he felt a tentacle encircle his legs beneath the water. 
With a last gasp, he was pulled under. A blur of swishing water. He lost all sense of direction. He just felt his body being whipped through the water back and forth. And with such power, his life vest was pulled clean off his body. He was whipped out of the water with a mighty toss. The sensations were too much for him to even take in. He just felt air and sun as his body was hurled onto the beach. Not so much a fall, he skidded up the sand like a motorcyclist might slide from a high-speed fall. His body rolled and sand flew in the air. He finally skidded to a stop just before the tree line. He was badly bruised and maybe broken bones. He could not even sit up. He only focused to try to catch his breath and come to his senses. He looked out on the water and he was astonished to see the mighty octopus pulling its incredible tentacles underwater, a bulbous head the size of a blimp, a massive yellow beak as big as a man as it subsided beneath the surface of the water. Maybe that's what took the boat. She saved me, he thought or maybe said out loud. But why? He could barely believe it himself, but here he was, a bit broken, but alive. And then, in the moment of relief, those thoughts were interrupted by a peculiar noise from the bushes. He tried sitting up a bit. The noise was coming from a thick overgrowth of roots and bushes. And then, no, those were not roots. They were moving. That strange chirping noise. Oh God, those were living things. And they had spotted Bob as he sat up. And Bob spotted them. And as they untangled their blackish-green little tentacles, Bob saw Doug, his shipmate, what was left of Doug's flesh and the bloody yellow life vest. Oh no. Oh, Doug. He couldn't possibly get up to run when they turned their attention on him. The strange squeal and cause as the babies came for Bob. This story comes from Northern Alberta, where a strange surveyor causes a ruckus on the road. Years ago, I got a job up in the oil patch. I wasn't familiar with life up there, having come from the flat prairies of the south. So on the first day I was there, I went out for beers with some of the veteran guys, and the topic turned to things I should know about the area itself, like what to watch out for, uh, especially since my position meant I'd be doing a lot of driving out and about. Their first advice was like, watch out for deer, moose, or even bear in the road. Uh, guys had been killed that way too, like hitting a big moose head on, or swerving off road to try to avoid some big animals that can come darting out of the tree line real fast. Mm, other suggestions like carry bear spray, always have a set of tire chains if the snow gets really bad up there. Uh, one of the guys at the table shouts, 
uh, yeah, and don't doink the local women. And everyone laughed dumb laughs. I don't even know what that meant. Then one of the guys put a beer down and says, Oh, if you see Smiley the surveyor trying to distract you, we'll just ignore him. Oh, man, I think this is like another inside joke, I guessed. But the other guys are like nodding in agreement as if they all know this story. And another guy says like, No, seriously, man, if you see him, like you can give him a quick wave, but just don't stare at him too long. And then you're good to go. So, like, at first I think this is some kind of joke thing on the new guy. You know, like one of those urban legend BS stories the locals tell outsiders. Like, in the prairies, we'd make up some story about cow tipping. Uh, but nobody actually did it. But we'd just say it to see if the city folks would actually believe it. The thing is, they, like, they didn't seem to be laughing about this. Uh, Smiley the Surveyor story, so it's kind of bothering me for a few days. And so much so that I mentioned it to one of the shop mechanics a few days later, like an older dude, and he didn't strike me as like a BSer type at all. No, seriously, there is a Smiley, he says, like as we stand around his workbench. If you ever cut through the old logging road, like just a few clicks before the town boundary, You'll be driving along, and sometimes you see a guy in, like, land surveyor gear. You know, the big blue overalls, yellow vest, white hard hat, you know. If he's there, you'll always see him standing at the side of the road just before the bend. He'll be smiling and waving at you from the minute he sees you coming, too. Okay, and he does what? Like, throw rocks at people, or, like, what's Smiley's deal? Oh, no, 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 nothing. He'll just smile and wave at you as you go by. The old mechanic pauses like he's not sure how to put his thoughts together. But he tells me, it's like he's a ghost, but he's not like a ghost. He's like two-dimensional. It's hard to explain, but no matter where you are, he's facing you, right? Well, okay, think of it like this way. Like you're watching, you're watching someone on a TV screen, right? Okay, Smiley is, like, always facing you. It's like you can't see the back ass of the guy, no matter what, because he's always facing you. Uh, I guess you could say he's like a optical illusion. Okay, so probably because I looked more confused than ever, the old guy sums it up just saying, Well, whatever it is, the only thing you need to know is don't stare at him, and you won't have any problems. And with that, he got back under the truck he was working on. So it's around a month later, and by then I'd gotten to know the roads and the forests in the area pretty good. But this uh, stupid smiley, the frickin' surveyor guy thing, is always in the back of my mind. And one day at the gas station, I even overheard someone say to another, uh, You know what they say, you can never see the back of smiley. Okay, so that kind of did it for me. Like, I was going to go find out what this frickin' smiley goof was all about. Now, there was a good dump of snow that day, but the weather was fairly sunny. So I decided to take the old logging road and try to spot this waving, smiling guy. This two-dimensional figure people kept talking about. I turned onto the old road. Okay, so I could stick with trees on each side. But sure enough, as I get far enough down the road, I can see a guy down there in a surveyor outfit. 
you know, like the bright yellow vest, and he's way down there. And indeed, he has seen me coming and is already facing me, and he is waving. I slowed it down, but not just because of the snowy conditions, though it did feel a little slippery that day, but because I intended to figure out uh, what's the deal with this guy and this illusion. So I'm approaching, and it really does seem like he's facing me, like, like he's standing square to my eyesight. And holy frig, as I get closer, yeah, it's like he isn't turning his physical body, but he's still facing me. And so even as I get closer, I realize like he's smiling away, like this big, dumb, neighborly grin on his face. And this kind of like farmer, <laughs> casual farmer wave. Okay, I don't slow down too much since I want to look like a normal, casual guy just driving by. But damn it, it is effing weird, but... Soon I'm passing right by him, and it's like he's a sign, like a billboard cutout image, and yet he isn't, like he's a real living person. And just as I pass him, I give him like a quick nod and a wave, and he gives like an extra grin and little extra oomph to the wave to acknowledge mine. Now just as I'm getting past him, I glance into the passenger side rearview mirror, and there's his reflection, like, as if he's facing the mirror itself. It's like we're not going around him or past him. He's just still the same front 2D dimension. It's crazy, and I can't believe it. And I turn my head to look out the cab's rear window, and I'm staring at this, like, freaking illusion that's still facing me, even as I'm driving... <laughs> I woke up in the ambulance, the bend in the road. I'd been staring at Smiley out the back window, and I friggin' drove straight off the road into a tree and KO'd myself. My knee got wrecked pretty bad in the accident as well. Oil patch jobs require the able-bodied, so uh, as you can imagine, that was my last day on the job. I moved back down south to the family farm and have never been up north again, but I can tell you this, if you see a smiling surveyor on an old road and he's smiling and waving at you, just give him a quick nod, but never stare at Smiley. A man from Ontario, Canada recounts the time the internet ruined his childhood memories. My sister and I were around 10 and 11 years old when our family moved from the city of Toronto to a farmhouse many miles away. For us kids, it was a wonderful new life, playing in the fields, <laughs> the fresh air. The old farmhouse was spacious, two floors and a basement too. Uh, we didn't know as kids that the house was over 100 years old, but our parents would remind us in our more rambunctious moments uh, to be careful about the antique furniture that came with the house. Every wooden door and floorboard creaked in the place, and yes, it had a dark old basement, and I think you can guess the next question. In fact, almost all of our family and friends, mostly the ones from the city, would always ask us, Is the place haunted? Uh, do you have any ghosts? 
Yeah, well, it was kind of a creepy-looking old farmhouse, I guess, if you were to look at it that way. But we eventually developed a standard answer. Yes, but she's a friendly ghost. See, people would laugh as if it was a punchline. Others sometimes became sincerely curious and wanted to know just what exactly a friendly ghost did. But in fact, we weren't joking. We had become convinced we had a benevolent spirit in the old farmhouse. The first time our family caught on to a helpful ghost phenomenon was during the rainy springtime weather. Uh, see, we'd take off our soaking wet shoes and leave them by the front door. The next morning, we'd find our shoes had been placed rather neatly upside down over top of the old metal grates where the central heating would funnel hot air up into the living room. I suppose some folks knew that trick if you happen to have similar central heating grates in your home, but we were kids and we never thought of that, and we assumed mom or dad was doing it. Well, it turned out mom and dad assumed we'd put our shoes there. And I can still to this day remembering mom explaining this strange thing with our shoes. Well, I don't know, maybe your ghost nanny did it. I remember once our mom was chastising us for not returning glasses to the kitchen. She'd say, I don't want to have to keep collecting them from your bedrooms, so you kids just bring them back downstairs when you're finished. The thing was, both my sister and I would simply wake up to find empty glasses on our nightstands. Now, glasses we never recalled seeing the night before, and we don't remember taking up to our room, so here again we blamed it on our friendly ghost. Actually, we'd already given her a nickname, Nanny. Maybe our ghost nanny just wanted us to have something to drink in the middle of the night in case we woke up thirsty. That reminds me of another time when my sister and I had been outside playing on the farm all day long. When we got back in, there was a bottle of milk from the fridge just sitting there on the stairs. Well, it was as if she wanted to make sure we got our daily nutrition needs. <laughs> I can remember the day my mom was convinced beyond any doubts we had a full-on helpful ghost lady. Uh, Mom had taken some sheets out of the dryer in the basement, but she'd left them in a pile on top of the machine. The next morning, my mom found those same sheets neatly folded and set on the living room sofa. I remember she said, well that settles it, because I know for a fact your father couldn't fold the sheet if his life depended on it. So that proves beyond a doubt Nanny is as real as it gets. And if those incidents weren't enough to convince us we had a maternal ghost, there was the undeniable sliding chair. Among the home's original furnishings was an antique wooden chair that came with the home. It was one of those antiques our father warned us not to use. It was a kind of stool, really, thick wooden legs and a wooden seat with a spoked backrest. Uh, we kept that at the back wall of the living room, and that living room was where us kids spent most of our evening hours, watching TV or sprawling toys or puzzles across those big wooden floorboards. 
that old chair against the back of the wall would move. It would slide ever so slowly closer and closer to us kids in the middle of the living room. This was no illusion. We saw the chair move. And by that time in our house, we were so accustomed to Nanny's ghostly activities, we'd joke about it. We'd say, oh, hi, Nana. You want to come sit with us now? Okay. And simply return back to whatever we were doing, watching TV or playing games. Some nights, the chair would skittle and slide the full 10 feet or so before coming to a stop right beside us. You'd think we'd be scared. I mean, to see a straight-up paranormal activity like that? But I would swear to anyone, we actually thought it was fun and even comforting. You know, if our parents were in the room, they'd play along too. Oh, here comes old Nanny. I guess she wants to sit with us. And sure enough, that chair would wobble, vibrate, and slowly slide along until it was right beside us. Like Nanny was a family member just wanting to sit with us. I mean, not that we could see her, but I think we imagined her ghostly form, surely that of a lovely old grandmother, just sitting in that chair. You know, this will even sound funny, but when we all went off to bed, we'd, we'd feel a little bad about putting the chair back against the wall. Uh, we'd say things like, Sorry, Nanny, time for bed now, but you can come visit us tomorrow, as we'd place it up against the wall. Well, several years later, my sister and I were in our early teens by then, and our family moved again, this time from the big old farmhouse back to Toronto and condominium city living. I can remember when the moving truck was full and we said goodbye to the home for the last time, my little sister said out loud, "'Goodbye, Nanny. We'll miss you the most.' and waved at the middle of the now-emptied living room, as if Nanny was somehow floating in midair. I'm telling you, we really felt like we were leaving her behind, and we really would miss her. At least, I'd miss her for a few decades. It'd been over 25 years since our family moved out of that farmhouse, and yet it held such fond memories that our family would always bring it up at every holiday get-together. See, I had a great idea for an upcoming Christmas gathering. I'd research that old farmhouse online, and if possible, whatever information I could get, I would dazzle everyone with a little history presentation. You know, the Internet provided a wealth of info, with the Farms County having recently uploaded a century of digitized files, old photos, local newspaper scans, all going back even to the 1930s. And it took a lot of clicks, but lo and behold, I found an article about the very farmhouse from March 1947. The Linden Home Tragedy was the headline. And below that glaring title was a grainy black and white photo of what was obviously to me our old family farm. In the photo, old-style police cars were parked in front of the house. Of course, I started reading the article, and I wish I never did. The story described the original occupants of the house, Mr. and Mrs. Gordon Linden, who had two children, 
and it reveals that Gordon died in World War II, leaving his wife a widow. The story goes on to suggest Mrs. Linden had developed melancholy after the death of her husband, and with the pressures of raising two children by herself, she descended into a state of madness. This, the author of the story, had it would surely explain how she came to, oh, what's this, to murder her own children and then end her own life shortly thereafter. I kept clicking. Now further issues of the local newspaper uh, would follow up on the Linden tragedy with some of the terrible conclusions of investigators. How that day must have been like any other, the children coming home from school on a rainy spring day. It was supposed that she had pre-planned everything as they found poison had been measured out in the kitchen where it was mixed into glasses of warm milk that she would give the children before bed. A grainy black and white photo showed the empty glasses found on the children's nightstands. On the opposing page, a photo of the living room. Now that's the same living room my family would later have enjoyed our evenings in. The beam from which she hanged herself was the caption. Well, I recognize that wooden beam. That was the living room. Sure, I, I recognize that, but what really jolted me was there in the photo that, that chair the one we called Nanny's chair. Without a doubt, it was the same chair, but in the story, it's describing a grisly purpose. It says, After tying sheets from the beam to her neck, the widow kicked the chair out from under her, thus hanging herself to death. Indeed, I looked carefully at the old photo. I tried to zoom in. The toppled chair... Well, where she would have hung was just about bang on where we, years later, would have sat and played and watched TV right there in the center of the living room. And that's where that damn chair was aiming for every night it started moving on its own. Nanny Linden was never a friendly ghost. She wasn't a helpful ghost. No, the entire time... She was a malicious, child-murdering, psychotic ghost who, I think all along, was just replaying the madness over and over again, but maybe with us children as our new would-be victims. I never shared my discovery with family that Christmas or any other time. It's been brought up again, those good old days, the farm life days, Uh, that big old house and You know, my mom always would chirp in something like, Don't forget, we had a ghost nanny, too. And everyone would smile. I think they'd best not know what she was up to that entire time. So, I'll keep it to myself. But yeah, that's how my childhood memories were ruined. Maybe sometimes, ignorance really is bliss. And that applies to ghosts. And memories too. This story comes to us from Thornton Huff 
in jolly old England, where we find out it's a dog's life after all. Thornton upon Hoof on the Wirral Peninsula could easily be one of England's postcard villages. You know, with its cozy pubs, its old church, the quaint old farms, and of course, all those Wellington boots. Now, this is a rural area. Unlike the British cities, large farmhouses are common around Thornton, and so are large families and large dogs, too. Uh, this story is about the Titherington family who, one autumn, were about to leave for a two-week vacation abroad. Thornton was the kind of place where neighbors never even locked their doors, and everyone knew everyone. But in recent years, at around this time of year, the local Scarecrow Festival, it had been attracting, well, let's just say the wrong sorts of people. In fact, the previous year, the Titheringtons had a frightful incident with some of those out-of-town festival visitors, the wrong kind, who had been caught wandering around their driveway looking to clean out their cars. It was a family member named Bruno that spotted one of the would-be thieves in their driveway. Uh, you see, Bruno was the heaviest of the family members at a whopping 320 pounds. Actually, Bruno was a particular breed of dog called a bull mastiff. A mass of muscle, short hair, and 20 pounds of jowls alone. It was this monster farm dog who actually heard the unfamiliar man in the driveway and chased him off. You should have seen him. I swear, he was the skinniest little junkie, probably high at the time, but he saw Bruno come round the corner and he ran like an Olympic champ down the driveway and maybe three miles more. This year, the Scarecrow Festival had attracted those waves of scallies, chavs, and druggy types again, and for this reason the Titheringtons did some extra planning before leaving the house for so long. Their good neighbor, Emma, a long-time family friend agreed to check on the house once a day, as well as feed Bruno and give him a run in the field at least once a day. Bruno had grown up with Emma since he was a puppy, so to him she was a part of his family too, and actually one of his favorite parts, because she always brought him a delicious leg of chicken or a piece of ham, so that took care of Bruno. Now, realistically, in Thornton Huff, they knew all the neighbors would naturally keep an eye on their house. That's how people were there. Everybody looked out for one another. But for their own peace of mind, and what with a rash of break-ins going on lately, they installed a video security camera inside the home. Well, let's fast forward. It's two weeks later. Having had the vacation of a lifetime, the Titherington family arrived back home in Thornton. Any worries they'd had were for nothing, because the house, the cars, and everything seemed to be just as they'd left it, including a big, happy Bruno waiting for them outside with Emma, the neighbor. Oh, there you go, love. 
Coot Emma as Bruno danced around in delight that his family was back home again, at least as much as a 320-pound dog can dance. Any problems, Emma? Oh, no, dear. It's been life as usual. I should mention I did think Bruno was feeling a little sad that you were gone, but now that he sees your back, well, he looks as spry and happy as ever, isn't he? A few days later, the family, having settled back into normal daily life, did notice that Bruno did seem to be a little out of sorts. He wasn't eating as much and, and seemed to be spending all his time down in the old farmhouse cellar. Well, what some call a basement. See, Bruno usually slept there, and lately it seems he was sleeping a lot. I think I know what's ailing him, said the father. Emma, she tends to overfeed him. I mean, she means well, but I've seen her bring him half a roast chicken at a time. The next day, a local vet dropped by to take a look at Bruno. Has he been having his usual bowel movements and such? Well, they noted that, if anything, more than ever. One of the great things about a farm was knowing that Bruno's uh, daily dumps, which were nearly the size of a horse's droppings, would be just more fertilizer for the fields. He'll be fine, but be sure not to overfeed him so much. And you can see he's already gained seven pounds since just a few months ago, the last time I weighed him. He's 327 now. The Titheringtons gave each other a knowing glance. I told you, Emma feeds him too much. In fact, the curiosity of just how much she'd been overfeeding Bruno got to Mr. Titherington, who had remembered they'd set up the security camera to run 24-7 while they were away. He figured he might just see how many roast chickens Emma had been bringing over to the surely delighted Bruno every day that they were away. Now, the camera was set up to capture most of the front door area, uh, a bit of the adjoining kitchen, and the cellar doorway. And so there he sat in front of his laptop screen, fast-forwarding. Okay, here we go. Day one that they were away, 11.23 a.m. Actually, he can see on the camera uh, Bruno bounding up from the stairs, coming from the cellar to the front door, where we can presume Emma is calling out his name. Uh, his tail is obviously wagging quite excitedly. Uh, Emma enters, sure enough. There she has a large butcher's bag, and Bruno is already nosing it with anticipation. All right, now the video shows her taking Bruno out the back door of the house. He has to fast forward about 30 minutes, where he can see on the camera they return from the outside, and Emma lays down a large roasted pork shank for Bruno, who, <laughs> clearly on the video, is very happy to get started on it. Minutes later, he sees Emma leave, obviously locking the door behind her. Bruno, seen on video, hauling the three-pounder more pig leg to his cellar retreat. Mr. T fast-forwards ahead to day two. Well, it's a virtual repeat of the day before. This time, Emma seems to be gifting him with a full Sunday breakfast and what looks like the world's largest Yorkshire pie, all of which is clearly delighting the monstrous dog who is wagging and nuzzling her. He can see on the video, they depart out the back door, come back perhaps 30 to 40 minutes later from his walk, and as usual, 
Emma locks the door behind her and leaves. Okay, he fasts forward to day three. Again, it's a repeat. Bruno bounds up from the cellar, and it's almost comical how he brings that prized bone with him. It's like he wants to show it off to Emma, who's letting herself in. She appears to take him out the back door again for his daily exercise. So, it's a repeat, a repeat, a repeat. But wait, then he sees something here on day three. Oi, what's this? He caught something while he was high-speeding, so he had to stop, rewind it, and replay. Well, now he's up, gazing directly closely into the screen, his eyes intensely watching the video capture. 11.17, okay. Emma and Bruno head to the back door. All right, the camera doesn't quite show the back door in the frame, but it's obvious by the sunlight. They've opened it, and off they've gone to the back fields. But not ten minutes later, a darkly dressed man in a hoodie is seen with his head just peering around the front door, which he has just slightly pushed open. Emma must not have locked it behind her. Now there's no audio, but it seems like he's calling out for something. Surely he was just trying to confirm that nobody was home. Now, the man has made his way into the front door. Oh, he looks like a junkie type, all scrawny and bug-eyed. Real sneaky like the way he's walking. He's obviously in here for something to steal. In fact, he looks a lot like that man that had showed up the year before in the driveway trying to break into their cars. He watches the man make his way over to the kitchen area, and he even looks in the bag Emma had left on the counter. Well, it seems he wasn't interested in the roast ham that he found in the bag. All right, now the man is seen heading to what would be the living room off camera, then back again. Now, the sneak has made his way to the cellar door. He's looking down into the cellar, and on video, he's seen descending into the cellar. Unfortunately, the camera cannot pick up exactly what he's doing there. It just goes into darkness. Mr. Titherington is all but shaking and sweating watching this. He can see the back door open and then close again, and Bruno rambles over to his water bowl for a big jolly drink of water. Emma comes into the frame. She follows the dog. She gives him a rather large hunk of roast ham. 11.37. Emma lets herself out the door. 11.37.51. Bruno is annihilating the ham. 11.38 and 37 seconds. Bruno is licking the last of the ham grease from his massive maw. And Bruno has become alert to something. 11.39 and 14 seconds. Bruno seems to be smelling something in the air, something he doesn't like, as his tail bends downward and he walks into the cellar. But an hour, more than an hour goes by and there's nothing to be seen. Eventually, he's fast-forwarding. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens at all. And then, it's nighttime. Now, most of the area captured on the camera was still clear enough because Emma would leave a kitchen light on, and so that would illuminate some of the details. If the burglar had made his way out through the cellar, it's unbelievable. Mr. Titherington was gobsmacked as the next day's recording was an unremarkable repeat. Emma arrives just after 11 a.m., a bag of dog treats for the massive bull mastiff. 
who comes bounding up from the cellar, his beloved bone in his mouth, happily dancing around Emma. They leave to walk out in the fields for about 30 minutes, and Emma returns, refills his food and water. The next day is another repeat, though it's actually worth noting that while Emma does leave him a chicken leg, Bruno does seem less interested in it and leaves it in the bowl. Fast forwarding, the next day, a repeat and nothing unusual is spotted. It might be noted that Emma did not seem to bring him a treat this time. Uh, maybe she had noticed that he'd left the chicken leg uneaten. Well, that solved the mystery of the overfed dog, but that was not the worry anymore. He wanted to watch every minute of that recording for a sign of that burglar who doesn't appear again in all 14 days of recordings. How the hell did he get out of there? He murmured to himself incredulously. You know, like a lot of England's big old farmhomes, the cellar doesn't have any doors or windows, so he thought he might have had to have missed something. His eyes were burning red from glaring at the screen. Uh, he was sure he didn't miss anything. The burglar enters that cellar, and unless the video skipped out or cut out at some point, he does not seem to exit. And it's not like there was a place to hide in the cellar. There was a small, dark, walk-in closet, which was really used as a pantry to stack canning goods, but... Other than that, there's not many places to go. Besides, he would have had to wait until Bruno fell asleep and then tiptoe his way out. And that's when Mr. Titherington suddenly realized he had seen something unusual. He rewinds the video back to day three. Watch closely. Emma arrives. Bruno greets her at the door, tail wagging, his beloved bone in his mouth, dancing around her. She pets him, he's happy, they make their way out the back door. But when they return, unaware that the man was in the cellar, just as they walk into the kitchen, you can see it on the camera. Yes, when they return from the back door and make their way into the kitchen, there is no bone in Bruno's mouth. He fast forwards. Bruno comes from the cellar to greet Emma as usual, with a well-gnawed bone in his mouth, prancing around Emma, eager to go for his walk. And when he returns, there's no bone in his mouth. Wait a minute. Emma had not given him anything with a bone in it. Day 10. Bruno again, leaving with a large bone in his mouth, and nothing in his mouth when he returns. Mr. T rang Emma. Sorry to bother you, love. I just wondered if you noticed Bruno was burying his bones in the back field every time you took him out. Ah, uh, sound right, yes. I'm sure he did, you know. Mm, he lets me take it from him, and I throw it as far as I can. Then he runs for it and buries it nearly wherever the bone lands. You know, I think it's his favorite game now that you mention it. It's all good, love. We just wondered where they go, after all. You have a lovely day. All right. He didn't have the heart to tell her of the burglar from weeks ago spotted on the camera entering the house and how close she might have come to something terrible. There was no need to mention this to Emma. It would only worry her. Besides, at that point, 
Mr. Titherington already knew what had become of the burglar. He took a deep breath and made his way down to the cellar, Bruno's home, and there was the big boy, sound asleep with his prized bone between his paws, as if he dozed off in some bone-gnawing bliss. Well, Mr. T looked to that small walk-in area to the right, because he knew he'd have to collect maybe a shredded hoodie, some bloodied runners, bag those up and have them tossed out in the rubbish bins later that night. Before he went back upstairs to delete the video recordings, he kneeled down besides the sleeping Bruno to give him some loving pets and pats. You're a good boy. You're a good, good boy you are. As big old Bruno, a femur bone underneath his paws, sighed a pleasurable sigh and drifted off into whatever it is dogs dream about when they're sleeping. A good, good boy. <laughs>